0: all of these texts today and all of this talk about heart encouragement the putting of courage into your heart are founded upon the knowledge that him being risen from the dead surpasses this world it is forgetting that very simple fact that has plagued the last generation of christianity in america no matter how faithful we were or have been we have lost heart by losing sight of what we were walking towards, getting all too comfortable with a world that said we can make it shinier than you thought. What we've had happen in the last year is a very gentle reminder from our Lord that it isn't all Disneyland all the time, and it never will be. And in fact, that plastic isn't so good a few years later now, is it? Modernism is not everything it's promised itself to be. That doesn't mean it's not here. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to believe in it like a religion, but it does mean that it's promises about a glorious future in which you can be assured of safety and prosperity just by being here with us new people. That's a lie. That's not how this planet works. Not everything's going to work out good just because. How do you then have heart? In that, or maybe I should ask, why would that make you lose heart? Why would you believe that you don't already need to have a world like that to have heart? Let me back up. James in verse 22 of chapter 1 says these frustrating words for Lutherans usually. And I I kind of am there with it because I don't like the way the English finally comes down. But what he says here is incredibly important. And for us as a church within the LCMS, I think it's exceptionally important right now that our church body has not really listened to this carefully for some time. It is our legacy to do so, but we have not done so. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, the problem, and I don't want to do too much inside baseball here, but we are a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation. The problem is that that verse immediately starts a fight in our church body about law and gospel. And we start to argue over whether or not we should tell people they're supposed to do stuff, or if we say that, it might convince them they're saved that way, and then they'll all go to hell. So in this great glorious heritage of rightly distinguishing law and gospel that you've heard about so much, I don't think we do it that much. Like we opine about it. But this text here, it would compel us to not argue about it, but to, to just do it. What does it mean to be a doer of the word and not a hearer? And why would I ever think that means save myself? Like what part of the Bible before this led me to think that this is now about justification? Right? And but that's where we get distracted by this. He's not talking about your justification. He's already established that you are purchased, that you are owned, that you belong to a good king who wants to provide you good things. And knowing this is being given to you according to the very words of the prophets and apostles fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be a what now? Doer of that word, not a hearer only. What does that mean? Let's, let's explain this in the text rather than argue law and gospel. Okay, first, the word doer is one of the most common kinds of verbs in the Greek. It's not always translated as do, make do, or do or maker. It can be translated, again, I just said make, maker. It can be translated as create, like what an artist does when they take clay and they make it into something else, right? Uh, and it can be translated as produce, produce and specifically this is its oldest meaning the way that a seed produces a flower or way the way that your sown uh field produces more from it than you put into it right that's this word it's not a rigid word about how high you jump in order to get over the bar of making jesus happy so you can go to heaven it's not what it is at all It's a word about being a planted seed and bringing forth fruit in a certain way as opposed to being one who only hears, uh, a tree with no fruit on it. But here again, I want to look at the next verse to really amplify what he's getting at. This is not about how good have you made your life in line with what scripture says life is. This is a million miles away from that. All this is is when you look at the Bible and you come up from it again, do you have any memory of what it said? And does that memory of what it said in any way change how you act? Maybe in real time when you realize what it says isn't how I want to act, and I'm acting wrong, and I need to do something like repent. That is what it means to look into the law of the scriptures. But now verse 23 24 and 25 that talk about this looking into the law and being a doer in comparison to a mirror, I think this is very helpful, okay? So every one of us probably got up and looked in a mirror at some point this morning. Uh, They used to call them vanities once upon a time because we lived in a society that realized there's a certain danger in loving yourself too much. And again, uh, that person's a narcissist is something I've heard thrown around a little too loosely these days. Uh, Having studied psychology, narcissism is a a pretty serious accusation to level against somebody. Uh, Then again, the story of Narcissus, the, the man who sat so long staring at his own reflection that the gods made him into a flower, well, that also has something to tell us about our present age and, and how highly we, we think of ourselves. But the point of James' text is not that mirrors are bad at all. In fact, he's more or less acknowledging mirrors are a part of life. You, you kind of can't avoid that them at some point. He clearly knew what one was. But when you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror, it wasn't all about how great you could look or maybe the other way, how much you could beat yourself up. I mean, some of you live like that on the inside. But what it really was about is living in a society that believes in hygiene, that we believe that being dirty carries more chance of us all getting sick together than being clean does. And we learned this like a hundred some odd years ago. And in theory, we're still knowing that, although I'm not so sure, you know, but but you looked in the mirror, not for you, but for everybody else, so that when you showed up, we 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 knew you were not crazy. (laughs) <laughs> we, we knew that you were someone who could hold a civil conversation and be part of our community. So mirrors are very much necessary. But now again, James is not even talking about that either. He, what he's talking about is how you experience a mirror, right? So And this is for everybody. The guy in the story is not like wrong in some way. He's just what happens. You get up, you look in the mirror, you clean your face. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm glad I caught that. You know, you move, I got to shave, you move on. And as you walk away from the mirror, maybe you even did some like mindfulness, like you're going to be a success today. Way to go, I'm baptized. Yeah, here we go. You walk away, it doesn't matter. You never see your face again. You see a world that's not you. And whatever pep talk you gave yourself, it might go with you for a moment. But By and large, you're operating in a completely different reality. Right? You're in one reality, Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> in the mirror. Huh? Uh, and then you're out in reality, the actual place. Huh? Now, all James is saying is don't do that with the Bible. That's it. Don't do that with the Bible. When you look at the Bible and you walk away from it, realize that it's the same reality. Everything's the same as what the Bible said. Now, I think that's one of the hardest things to believe today. I really do. I think that the promises of this magical age we live in are so great that it's very difficult to trust the Bible to be true. And why don't I just give you one of the stories? When I mean, we heard it a moment ago. I'll tell you, this has got to be about the daftest thing I ever saw. It really is. It's up there. Numbers 21, four through nine, right? It's in the bulletin there. I mean, let, let me sum this thing up. The people get saved from being slaves. They're eating a magical bread from heaven, but they don't like it and they complain. So God sends fire-breathing serpents upon them, and they're like, oh yeah, that's totally cool. We were wrong. You were right, God. And he's like, you're right. You were wrong. So how's this? Make a statue and worship it, and that'll work out. Amen. End of story. Like, How'd that get in the Jewish Bible? Huh? What's going on with this, this snake lifted on a pole? It's quite the thing. So from Mount Or, they are setting out by the way of the Red Sea. This is after the Exodus event, right? They've been saved by this guy named Moses, who's come in the name of this God named Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And with a staff in his hand, He's done a number of mighty works, including smiting Pharaoh's firstborn son and leading them across the Great Red Sea on dry ground, watching their enemies be collapsed behind them. Don't forget that they also were wearing the gold and the silver and all the ornamentation and wealth of Egypt. They had all that had been given to them. They sang alleluia and praise. They don't have any food. But God begins to bring before them this manna, this, what is it? I don't know, it was magical bread that showed up every morning. It seemed to be good. They ate it for a while with pleasure. If You tried to store it, hoard it, didn't work out so well. But here's the thing that you really wanna catch. Notice, Notice what they say when they grow weary of all of this God has done. When they forget about the salvation and they realize they're still living in tents in a wilderness, Eating crusty bread off the ground every morning. I mean, it wasn't Wonderland, right? Uh, So they say this, though, and they they really have a lie here. You can catch it right in the text. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Do you notice the lie, right? You caught it? There's food just not the food your poor little heart wanted, right? You wanted this, God gave you that. This is the question, where is your heart when that happens? And can you believe that no matter how your prayers are answered, they're there to give you heart? That even when you think the prayer comes back backwards, it is in fact what God wanted and this shall encourage you? That's the promise that's here in this stuff today. I'm not saying it's easy to always remember this, and I'm not anywhere near perfect. But pressing on toward the goal for the sake of the upward call, it's an amazing thing to be able to repent. And that's even then what these people who lie about their food will end up doing. But first, we have this bizarre moment. Where God sends, it says, fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And there's confusion with the, the ancient Greek mythology of the as a fire-breathing lizard of sorts. And, and uh, a lot of this has to do with how English developed as a language to cut through the chase. Uh, these are not fire-breathing. But what is going on is that behind some poisonous snakes, you have the seraphim showing up. The seraphim are the fiery angels that are in the presence of God. Remember that the tabernacle, where is the presence of God with the cherubim and seraphim is in the middle of the entire camp. And as the people are beginning to complain about that, the very angels that are protecting them stop. And poisonous snakes come out of the ground because they weren't being allowed out before. And they begin to bite the people. Now, And the people realize this. This is the most amazing part. They believe this is, in fact, their fault. They see that this is, in fact, their fault. And they say, we have been arrogant. We have thought about ourselves too much. We have believed in ourselves too much. We complained against God. And I I can't go past this part without coming back to it. God and Moses. Poor Moses. I mean, for for all the pastors out there, we do get blamed for a lot of things that are not our fault. It's, it's, It's the life. We own it. But so I can, I can have you have empathy on poor Moses here. Remember, this guy was happily married on the other side of the planet before the bush talked to him, right? And now the people want to kill him in the bush. Great, right? So poor Moses, eh, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, it, it, they repent. And they come back to their messenger. And they say, go and pray for us, right? We have sinned. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents. And so Moses does this, and why would he not? Uh, But then this next part again is bizarre. In in almost any other context, you'd say that God said, make an idol and worship it. Sort of what kind of would happen in any other context. And this thing eventually does become an idol. By the time the Old Testament is over, this snake made of bronze on the pole and lifted up has become something. I believe they call it Neshusten or something. It's got a name. They name it up in Samaria and they worship it and they're sacrificing to it. And finally, it's destroyed by fire. God somehow destroys it uh, because he's tired of it. So it becomes that at a certain point. But here is not that. Here's not that. So let's zoom back a little bit and remember that Moses has been leading the people with this staff of God's power and leadership all this time. And so now what is God saying? He's saying have a staff like that one or connected to it. I don't believe it's the same one because the original goes in the Ark of the Covenant. But have a staff like that one on which you put this snake as I tell you to do it. And it will show you that I'm God. It's not an idol. An idol would be if you made a snake on a pole and said you think praying to it can save you. I'm God who made heaven and earth. And I said, I'm going to save you through you looking at this snake on the pole. So anybody who's sick, if they believe me when I talk, look at the snake, you're doomed. You're saved. This is done. If you refuse to believe me because you think that's impossible, bronze snakes don't work like that. Well, I guess I'm not your God anymore, am I then? Right? And that's the point of the entire thing. So that Moses goes into this crowd and says, Yahweh says, look at this. And everyone who does lives. And they wanted to. They wanted to repent. Remember this? That's why they were there in the first place, was because they wanted to have Moses pray that they might go back from, return to, trusting in Lord on the sojourn on the way to the promised land. Now, do not miss this. I mentioned how the snake gets turned into an idol and burned. It also gets reappropriated by Jesus. So that when he's met by Nicodemus that night, somewhere in a dis- undisclosed location, and they have a conversation about being born again by water and the Spirit and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Jesus ends the conversation by saying that just as Moses lifted up a snake on a pole, so must the Son of Man, that means the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, so must he be lifted up from the earth implying the cross, implying his crucifixion. And he says, and when he is lifted up from the earth, crucified, he will draw all men to himself. And the next thing he says is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen, most famous Bible passage in the world. And if it's not memorized for you yet, it needs to be. But don't disconnect that love God has for the world from Jesus Christ being lifted up, crucified as the fulfillment of this Old Testament passage, which itself serves as a story to help you remember that in every time and place, God is more concerned with your eternal life than with your temporal one. God is more concerned with keeping you remembering that he's the true good God and the devil's the bad guy than with keeping you happy and comfortable. Because he actually knows the more happy and comfortable you get, the more you tend to side with the devil. It's kind of weird. It's called sin. We all got it. (laughs) And God knows it. And he binds us in. And he does this through law and gospel. He binds us in through family. And he binds us in through good government. Whoa, Good government, if you can find it, as I almost fall as well. He binds us in also, though, by baptism into the promise that he's not going to leave us in our sin and that our hearts now in faith enlarged can walk differently in this life like this people turning day by day week by week not just individually away from those things that would tempt taunt deceive or distract us but also together as a as a unit as a people as a congregation so as we come back to James here a little bit uh, again as a group, what we really want to hear is that this is not about you being a doer of the word and not a hearer only by yourself. It's it's not what it's about. It's plural. (laughs) It's about us. It's the question, what does your Christian congregation do? Do they come and suit themselves? get a little Sunday morning holy entertainment, roll out with a few hellos, and that's the end of it, you know, mirror, forgot about it. Or are you such that what is laid down in the text is taken up by you together so that with each other you grow in it so that you are in fact distinct out in the world as shining lights, as salt, not to retract and hide, nor to assault and attack, but to, again, just be a good neighbor, which I, I think there's more of them out there than most of us realize. We're just scared that everything's like what's going on in the hearts of the worst places, because that's all they show yet, right? But to strive to be a good neighbor together, us. Huh? Okay, so let's move from what that means then into, back in James, doer of the word, not hearer only. Don't look at it like a mirror and forget. Look into what? Verse 25. I want to do this part in the Greek. I brought the Greek just for this. Because it just reads so much better here. 25. The last word. It's freedom there in the English. Liberty, I guess. Liberty in the English, often translated freedom. Eleutherios, Eleutherios, Dr. Martin Luther, after he discovered the gospel of his forgiveness in the text of the Psalms and the book of Romans, for a short time, he signed his name, Martin Eleutherios, the Greek word freedom. He eventually took up his natural name Luther again. There's no real connection except for the fact that if you really want to defend the name Lutheran, the best way to do it is to say it's the Greek word for freedom or liberty. And so a Lutheran church is a church that is free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, that's all a hat trick sort of thing, right? That's not really etymology. But it's here, all the same, a coincidence of coincidences. The law of liberty, Eleutheros, the law there is the word namas. Namas, very common word. Um, We use it in English in other contexts. But uh, that word does not necessarily mean like law and gospel, it doesn't necessarily mean like moral commandment versus promise. That word means for James, especially the entire Old Testament. Because the entire Old Testament is this namas of right? the law of freedom. And he calls it one more thing. He calls it teleion, teleaon. That word is most famous because of Jesus' using of it on the cross as his last word tetelestai uh, it is finished or it is accomplished tetelestai you can hear teleon in there it means to complete or to accomplish accomplish perfect in english has a very moral flavor to it right um, but teleon is not about moralness this isn't the law of morality it is the final Revelation of God's declaration of your freedom, which for James does indeed, as he writes the first book of the New Testament, mean the Old Testament. Not to reject that New Testament stamp which the apostles have left us in those 27 books. But so hear this then again as when it exhorts you to be a doer, not a hearer, it's exhorting you to Bible study by yourself at home. That's what James is saying. Go and open your Bible and read it, and find in it questions, questions, and then bring those questions honestly to your pastor as part of why I'm here, but also speak about it with yourselves. There's much more where we have for time. here. are checking our time. We have time. Um, I want to, before we're done today, make sure I address prayer as Jesus talks about it in John. But I also think the remainder of James is still worth looking at. I don't have a good transition here. But we're going to pick up at verse 26 of James 1. And this is where then, oh no, I don't want to go past the end of verse 25. So let's back up. We got that law, that namas, that is the complete freedom that's been testified in the Old and New Testaments. And if we look into that and come away from it with a changed heart, as opposed to having it be like a mirror where I I can't possibly remember it. I just live a different life. I'm two faced as it were. Um, So that we're a doer who acts. Notice how it says he will be blessed in his doing. That's the last part of verse 25. Um, uh, It's this man, this one blessed in the doing of it, he will be. So Also see that when the Bible exhorts you to act on something, it's completely different from the way the world does it. The world wants you to act on something because you'll get something back. The world wants you to act on something because it will achieve something. The Bible wants you to act on something just because it is. And even though sometimes, certainly with the false teacher, you wouldn't want to give his words that credit, with Jesus' words, you do want to give it that much credit. You do want to act on everything he says. When he says, ask and you will receive, you want to take that seriously. Don't just let it be something you listen to today. Right? Go home and after this day, if you haven't yet thought about prayer and a prayer life, consider it. The first step. Huh? Or, again, go back into your prayer life with what you've taken from today's text. Huh? So... Uh, uh, to be blessed in the doing is the thing itself. So that when you would act upon, say, you shall not murder, the blessing is that you're not a murderer. But but we all kind of know, but I don't know we talk about much. Is that like if you murder someone, it hurts your heart. <laughs> it really does. You can sear your conscience so nobody knows but you. <laughs> but but the more evil you do, the worse it gets on the inside, right? Uh, and so. The the promise of Christianity is not that you're going to save yourself. That's all done. It's all done. But but being saved by Jesus, you can have a cleaner conscience week by week by not being the fool the world would have you be by learning to look into this Old and New Testament reality and seek to embody it, right? Um, This is what he encourages, again, us to do as a people so that the iron sharpening iron amongst ourselves would continually point us forward to that hope we share which i haven't said in too long now that is he is risen yes hallelujah so verse 26 if anyone thinks his religious uh, excuse me if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religious religion is worthless it's the same idea so if your mouth is saying things that are not or are the opposite of what the Bible actually says, well then, the Bible's not your religion, and Christianity certainly is not. I can apply this to Islam. I can apply this to Hinduism. I mean, anybody who says that they believe something and then doesn't really, I mean, it's not going to do them any good. It's a worthless religion. But Christianity amplifies this even more so, because our religion is, above all things, a religion of words. It's a religion of the word who became flesh to dwell among us, the the God who speaks things into being. And so if one walks around saying, I'm a Christian, then they gab, gab, gab about lots of non-Christian things. And they never speak Christian things at all. That means they got an unbridled tongue. And they're deceiving their own heart. Oh, that's why you don't have any. You deceive your own heart, your heart gets tired of trusting you. (laughs) Gives up after a while, right? So, I mean, what's the answer here? Uh, is to realize that our religion is one of the tongue. The answer is not to shame yourself about how little you've done. The answer is to put some word of God in your mouth this week and rejoice at the opportunity, whether that's taking a Psalm verse or a whole Psalm and just doing it every day. As again, I've said, open the Proverbs and just find two a day, one a day. It'll change your world, right? James encourages us unto this as a group with again, the promise that this will be good for all of us, most of all. Those who might be unseen in our midst, like these orphans and widows. It's not so much that just the orphan and the widow need care. It's that they're the least of these. They are those who are most forgotten by the world. And even in our great triumphal age, right, uh, a a lady whose husband dies often finds herself uh, slowly, slowly forgotten. And we pastors who visit them in the hospitals know all too well how even kids can forget. It's quite amazing. Not all kids, but some. And orphans, where are they? They're there. We don't see them anymore, do we? Uh, uh, But this is the concern a little bit. It's not that St. Paul has to go and fix every orphan's life or go take care of every widow and start a new ministry here and there. The question is, when we dig into the scriptures together, who do we find close and near to us who needs us? How do we bridle our tongues from what we wanted a life enough to be together with the tongue led by the scriptures to see those around us and what they need? Because that's the way to leave a mark on this planet. I mean, if you really want to leave a mark on this planet, you don't build for this planet. You build for the next life. Uh, something that's, you yeah, know, they did a good job of that like a thousand years ago And then we got sick of it and told all the kids they're monkeys and now they're going crazy I mean, it's, it, it really did happen like that, right? And you had people screaming the whole way. Don't teach them that and, and what are you going to do? Here we are But unless jesus is going to come back tomorrow We're going to go on And we're going to do that by means of the word of god in prayer So let me try to close it this morning with john 16 not not the whole text Just the last verse and the first two verses And the last verse where he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, take heart, have encouragement in yourself, right? Be encouraged, which is to have courage poured into you. Why? Because even though you know that tribulation and hardship are what this life is going to bring you, no matter what the commercials say, that Christ has overcome all of it, including the deceiving liars who are using all of the mass media powers they have to loot this country bloody dead. And they're really doing it. We can watch. It doesn't matter to us because Christ has overcome this world. I don't want the U.S. to fall. But if the U.S. falls, my heart will not be broken because my heart rests on a different kingdom. I will serve my neighbor. I will serve my neighbor and protect my neighbor. But I'm not going to weep for Caesar. Not when Caesar teaches me to kill children and to sexually molest them, which is what the current system is doing, right? So if God tears that down, what's that to us? We should just get out of the way which, if you haven't noticed, this nice little hill in the corner is in the middle and nowhere. We're wonderfully out of the way to, again, return to what we know will outlast all these things unless Jesus returns, which is his word founding your individual life as part of our bodily corporate life, family, household, and congregation. With such trust, we may then turn to prayer, and this, this the very type of prayer that Jesus exhorts us to, In 23 and 24 here of chapter 16, where, I mean, 23 is mysterious stuff about the Trinity that will not ask of Jesus specifically, but of the Father only. I think this may have next world implications, uh, but uh, let's just go past that for now and stick with 24. Uh, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We sang a song very similar to this text a few moments ago. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, ask and it shall be given to you, knock and the door will be opened. That's not just a song, Uh, that's a direct quote from the Sermon on the Mount, that's in the book of Matthew, probably the most famous section of teaching by Jesus in the entire Bible, and it's quite a nice song. I've always thought it would be a good one to have more often at the Lord's table. I I forget, and I'm going to tell Cantor that at some point here, Um, Mr. Stair. But, uh, you know, seeking first the kingdom, you are exhorting each other when you sing that song to find the Lord's Supper, to find Jesus' body and blood as the culmination of the kingdom. So the song's about that. But also, at the same time, this idea, ask and you will receive. Pray to Jesus, pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and your prayer will be answered no matter what. Let me suggest to you that's harder to believe than the story about the fiery snakes, That any prayer you ask God, especially if you come together as two or three Christians and ask in Jesus' name, he will answer with an emphatic yes. It might look like a snake on a pole, so it's not what you thought it was going to be. But if it's a prayer in his name, it will be answered. Now, let's try to put that in some context here, okay? The issue is never what you pray for. It's not the thing. It's why you're asking for the things, what James says later in his book. If you're asking so that you can be more selfish and use it for yourself more in this falling life and deceive yourself further from the truth so that, in fact, maybe even you cast yourself into the pit of fire rather than join with your Lord Jesus, then Jesus is going to say no. He he loves you way too much to give you what's going to destroy you. So why are you asking? When you pray in Jesus' name, what does that mean? I would suggest to you that it means praying for things Jesus says he wants to give you. Real fast one, Holy Spirit. He said it. You know, if you want to ask for it. Like just do it right now in your heart. Can I have more Holy Spirit? He says he'll answer that one every time. It doesn't mean snap, boom, bang, but it does mean, uh, my guess is, you'll pray more this week as a result of that prayer if you just say that right now. Ask and you will receive. Ask for the things he promises to give, and you will always get a yes answer. Now, that's not that easy. That means you got to have a full working knowledge of the Psalms and Proverbs. Yeah, it does. Well, so let's just start reading those, would you? I keep trying to encourage you to do that. And then let me give you like the, the, the rule of thumb way, right? Right now, St. Paul Lutheran Church, all of you together as individuals and families, start praying for the stars. Pray for the world. Pray for a cathedral and a giant library and a farmer's market with a co-op across the way that's a nonprofit that raises money so we can give away food downtown and anything else you can imagine for the next 40, 100, and 150 years. Ask for it. Ask for it. Throw in whatever color you want the carpet to be. I'm going to argue against having carpet, but that's okay. Uh, Pray for the stars. And then whatever you get... Believe that's the gift of God for the good of this moment. Let's use it. And that might be the opposite of what you wanted. That's the trick. That's the trick, right? You have to be able to let him decide which ones are good ideas and which ones are bad ideas. <laughs> and then realize that whatever you got next, he thinks is a good idea. So let's try like ankle pain, right? You stub your ankle. It's going to go away eventually. You pray today. Can you take it away, Lord Jesus? He says, no, you got to learn the lesson you got to have that pain right now. Why? I don't know. It's different for everybody. Yeah? But the snakes teach us this. It's always so we remember that this place kind of sucks. Sorry, I said it. It kind of does. Earth does. It's not that good. You can plastic over it and asphalt over it, and you can put sugar in everything so it tastes good and just gives everybody diabetes. I mean, it's, it's just endless, right? It's, this place is bad. And the more that we cannot be bothered by that fact, Because we know it's kind of like a a theme park that we get to live in. And just don't be deceived into thinking it's going to stay here, right? It's all going to burn down like an island collapsing into the water at some point. All we want to do is not have our minds deceived by it. So that like Pinocchio, maybe, right? We're not all donkey. (laughs) And we can run and get off. And again, the ark of the Christian church is the way and the truth and the life. It is the way out because the ark of the Christian church is Jesus. He is risen. Hallelujah. And that resurrection into which you are baptized makes us his body. This building being made to look like a ship is to remind us that we are the ship. He's building this ark and you will make it to the other side. Take heart. He has overcome the world. In the name of Jesus Amen.